that word partnership really made me think differently. First of all, it's so mind-boggling, the idea that the divine would want to enter into a partnership with a humble piece of dust like us. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're talking about two different books. One, a father wrote about an experience with his family, especially his adult daughter. And the second is actually a series of books written in the 1700s that are a description of the author's revelatory experiences with God. I'm in studio today with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And student producer Leah King. Hello. Michael Schnabel wrote this book called Daddy's Girl that we're going to talk about. A father, his daughter, and the deadly battle she won. This is a really gripping book because it kind of goes to what any of us would think if a very close family member suddenly got a diagnosis of what could be a fatal disease. And what we heard from Michael and what we read in his book was about how he and his wife, his daughter Stephanie and her husband, and even the little grandbaby that was part of the story, yes. they pull together as a team to work together to attack this cancer diagnosis. Yeah, I like how he's talking about how this trial kind of grew his soul. Not only like physically she was healed, but spiritually they all had their own experience. And he did write that and journal it. And I think it's interesting that we can read their experience. And also, I am just fascinated. We'll hear him talk about different events that happened, people they meet. And we couldn't even talk about all of them in the interview because there were so many in the book. It's those life situations where we decide this thing just happened and I don't know if this was an amazing coincidence or did God just do something amazing without leaving enough clear fingerprints that now I get to or have to decide what I'm going to think about this event. And one of the uh, really startling things about this story of Stephanie is that Everyone was really excited about the birth of Stephanie's son, and she was pregnant and having a fairly difficult pregnancy. She delivers that son, and then only two weeks later, they discover that she has colon cancer. So a really difficult transition to make, I would think, emotionally for everyone. We always told each other the truth right after we had found the diagnosis that she had stage four colon cancer and uh, the likelihood of her dying. She had an 8% chance of living five years. We were all in shock. This was maybe even an hour and a half after uh, we found out about the diagnosis. And she turned to me and she said, Dad, am I gonna die? And it's probably the most difficult thing I've ever answered. In my head, I didn't know quite what to say. I wanted to be supportive and, oh, we're gonna beat this thing and all that, but. Our relationship was built on trust. It was built on love. And I really felt I needed to tell her the truth. And I said, sweetheart, I really don't know. And I had tears coming down my cheeks and we hugged and held on to each other like we had to hold on to each other for that moment. And that haunted me for a long time. I wasn't sure if I'd answered correctly. Later on, we would talk about it. And she said that I definitely did. And it was for the reasons I said, because of our love for each other and our trust. And at some point, you actually started journaling about this. Yeah. Was that a habit you'd already had? We went from the highest high that we could have by getting our first grandchild yeah. and so excited and everything. She'd had some problems starting with her second trimester. And we knew there were things that were going on. But once the baby was born, it was healthy. They took the baby early. They could go in and do some tests and try and find out what was going on with her. And that's when we found out. So we went from this incredible high of having this new child in our lives to two weeks later being told that our daughter would most likely die. What my daughter had just kept saying, she says, I cannot handle the fact that I may never see this child grow up and he may never even know me other than maybe pictures. I'm her father. Every father is protective of his children. And so I thought, what can I do about this? I'd never journaled before. I did a lot of writing when I was in the pharmaceutical business. I was in training and did a lot of presentations and things like that. But 
When it came to Stephanie, I thought, I'm going to try and capture her essence, her soul, her being for this child so he knows how hard she fought and how much that she loved him in case she wasn't around for him to experience himself. So that was really the impetus of it and the motivation for me. It turned out to be a very positive thing. I not only started capturing the things that were happening day to day, but I was able to catch the emotions that I was going through, that she was going through. We were a very close family. And so we would talk. We dealt with so many things together, the five of us. It was very helpful to get those things out of my mind, out of my memory, and just park them in a word file for this journal. So that was the beginning of the book. And when my daughter then was considered cured, she and I then took a lot of this data compiled it. And then I wrote a journal to Caden. That was really my first book, mm. but it wasn't for the public. It was something that had, it was very raw. It had a lot of things in it. So we went back and we mentioned it to our oncologist at Mayo Clinic. And he suggested that I share the story with the public. And he said, simply, Mike, this is a story of hope. And that's the one thing that all of my patients need more than anything else. So many of them have death sentences and, you know, that they have got, they're just tip, tipping down the time and they need hope in their lives. They need faith in their lives. That was something that led me then to take the journal to Caden and actually make it into a book for the public. Well, that idea of hope is a thread that runs throughout. I'm wondering, in a situation like that, where things are happening that are out of your control, how did you deal with that? Or maybe this is it. This writing gave you a place, as you said, to park some of those feelings. That's what I was saying earlier about. I think God gave us the resources that we need. And in the beginning, I had a strong background in business. And I knew that you can't take time to react to things. You need to go ahead and quickly understand them and start dealing with them and trying to move forward. And so the first night that we found out things were moving very quickly. And one thing we realized very quickly was every decision that we made could have an impact whether she lived or she didn't. And that was very scary. Uh, 20 minutes after we heard the diagnosis, we saw a surgeon who wanted to do surgery about 14, 16 hours later. And we spent two hours with him. That's when my daughter asked me about dying. After he left and we had the surgery scheduled, we were all there in shock. And we, I could see that this was not a good thing, that this was happening to every one of us, but no more powerful than it was happening to my daughter. And so I just stood up and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and we're going to fight this. We're going to stand beside you. And that in itself is huge. Every one of us has been in a situation where we were scared. We were afraid of something and standing there alone. And then if somebody comes up next to you and puts their arm around you and says, hey, I'm here with you. I'm going to help you. We're going to do this together. It makes all the difference in the world. And so that's what we did that first night. And I took a leadership role. But as the story goes on, everyone took a leadership role. And interestingly, it seems like different ones of you are carrying that torch at different times in the process, which is the beauty of a team. Yes. My wife, my daughter, my son-in-law, Mark, was just so strong, myself, and even the little baby. The baby became an oasis for us in all of this terror and struggle. The good news in everything. Yes, yes. And so he gave us a break from this tormenting and garbage that was going on with his little giggles and his smiles and his facial expressions and such. He was the leader a lot of times. The other thing that was really important was my daughter. She's the strongest person, the bravest person that I've ever met. And it's tainted by the fact that I'm her father. But so often, we all took different leadership roles. One of us would be strong and the others would be failing. And we let off that. But no one more than my daughter. She was the strongest one in the team. And when you ask her how that happened, she says, well, a lot of times she was falling apart on the inside. But she knew that we needed her strength. And that's one thing we agreed to that first night. We said, we'll do everything that we can. We'll get you the best doctors in the world. We'll take you to the best places, research centers. We'll try and we're going to overcome this thing. And you can feel sorry for yourself tonight. You can get angry. You can throw things. You can do whatever. But tomorrow morning in the surgery, 
we start the healing process. We start moving forward. And so then you've got to go ahead and become your own best advocate and you have to fight. And through tears, she smiled and she says, great, dad, let's do it. And that's how it started out. You mentioned having each other and then you mentioned faith. And a crisis like this often makes people turn to God, sometimes for the first time. But it seems for sure. you, you had an ongoing faith even before this. Yeah, definitely. Every one of the members of our family had a strong faith. But truly, we had no idea how strong our faith was. I don't think anyone does until it's really tested. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my faith was a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. When I started very young, I thought about being a minister. I thought I was involved in Boy Scouts and Bible camp were my big thing growing up. I really had a strong relationship with God, but it was a very personable thing. It was something that when I prayed to God, it was so much stronger than when I went even to church and when I talked to other people, my one-on-one -on -one relationship. When I ended up finding my love of my life and getting married, she was a very strong Catholic. I was from the Lutheran faith. She had two priests in the family. Currently, she's got two uncles that are bishops in the Catholic faith. And so it's a very strong family. So it was a given that I was going to go ahead and switch over to Catholicism. And I thought, that's fine. That's great. I'm going to learn new things and take a look at a different angle. But my relationship with God never changed. I'll tell you one thing that did change through this, and it's interesting because I, I continue it today. I find that if I start my day with some prayers and some meditation, it really lays down a foundation for me. And so during this ordeal, it was so easy to beg God for help and to ask for things. And I started changing that attitude and started thanking God because when we were in the most desperate situations, time and time again, we ended up with the very best outcome. And I don't believe really in coincidence like that. I think something was helping us, someone was helping us. And this happened time and time again. I start every day out with a thank you prayer and it lasts about 15 minutes and it's just from my heart. And I have so much, I'm so blessed. I have so many things to be thankful for. And it really sets me up. My son-in-law, my daughter, my wife, we all have strong faith. And my wife and I said, God, take anything you want from us. Just please save our daughter. But we never got angry with God. And that was something that I found very interesting because Stephanie never said, why is this happening to me? Why isn't this happening to someone else? I don't deserve this. There was never any of that. We all have the same faith and feeling that we're challenged and we're challenged to grow our souls. And we are trying to do the best that we can. And God will help us when he needs to, but he wants us to go ahead and grow and have these opportunities to grow in our faith. A few of the things you said are so natural. I'm going to call it bargaining. God, take what you need from us, even if it's our yeah. lives, to save my daughter. Yes. is such a heartfelt parental thing. As your daughter is going off to surgery, she has to let go hands with you and with her mother, and it's almost too much for her. And then if I can just read from the bottom of page 35, it says, as they wheel Stephanie into the operating room, she's terrified and can't stop thinking of Caden, deprived of his mother. Then a thought fills her mind, let go and let God. Everything fades away as she answers, God, I can't handle this anymore. You have to take over. The transition is instantaneous as her body relaxes, and her mind finds peace. I think it's so interesting to, to seek to find peace even without a final answer, even without knowing what the outcome will be at that point. How did God surprise you in all of this process? By things like that, to be honest with you, because Steffi told us about that after the surgery. It was not an unusual thing in her story. It was the first thing in her story. We ended up going several weeks later to a large research center. It was interesting because it wasn't working out very well. They had lost some of our paperwork. They'd lost our slides. There were just a number of things. We didn't have a good fit with some of the physicians that we were talking to. And we were really wondering what was going to go on, what was going to happen, what our future was going to be like with our daughter. 
And we really went to this institute hoping that we were going to find leadership and answers and we wouldn't have all this pressure and on us that we would have someone to help guide us. We needed a quarterback and we weren't finding that. <laughs> and as we went through a day of testing that started at six o'clock in the morning and then went till about seven o'clock that night, in the middle of all that, my wife and I had the baby and we were sitting by some elevators. There were hundreds of people walking by. We were there for maybe two hours. Everybody smiled at us because we had this newborn child, but only one person stopped, one individual stopped. And that person came up and said, oh, hello, what a beautiful baby. I hope there's nothing wrong with the baby and you're not here for the baby. And we said no, and we shared Stephanie's story. And the lady smiled at us and listened to us. And she was very striking. She was a beautiful woman. And she said, you don't have to worry about this. Your daughter is going to be okay. I know it. And the reason I know it is the same thing happened to me 40 years ago. And she talked about coming in, giving birth to her child, then finding the colon cancer and telling her that she wasn't going to survive. She went into a coma for, I think, three months. The nurses took care of the baby next to her in a bassinet. And she came out of that coma, never had any more surgery, never had any chemo and was saved. And 40 years later, she was standing there. So what brought us together in that moment? No one else stopped. And this person gave us hope again. Yeah. And so to me, it's one of God's messengers. So these things, as they started happening in our lives, and it happened over and over again, where we were in dark places and things came along to go ahead and help us, really boosted our faith. So we felt that we had strong faith. We all were strong believers. But again, you don't know until you're tested. And these things that came along just kept happening and just kept renewing our faith. And our faith just kept getting stronger and stronger. Now, it wasn't that we weren't scared. It wasn't that we knew that she was going to live. It wasn't anything like that. But it kept giving us enough to keep moving forward. I love that you picked out that moment from whichever side to be the only person that you met in the whole process who had the same experience and to share her assurance of how things would turn out. It was pretty remarkable. And one of those moments we have to decide, I think by faith, is this a coincidence? Is this God working? Yeah, I agree. It's very popular to say that people don't believe in coincidences. But yeah, I feel that things happen for a reason. And that's what we were trying to figure out with this. Why was this happening to our family? And I don't know why it happened to our family. I just know that we really pulled together and we are a stronger family because of all this. I have to ask, the central character who doesn't say much until the very end is this grandson, Caden, who is now a teenager. Has he read yes. your book? Yes, he has. He was very hesitant for a long time for obvious reasons. He was just scared. He knew the basics of the story. He knew that his mom almost died. He knew that we fought hard and that we went to different places to go ahead and help her and that it was a long journey. But uh, he stayed away from it. And so we talked about it as it went into, as we got a publisher and started moving forward to this, that it may be something that he wants to know a little bit more about if people are going to talk to him about it and such. And so his mother started reading it to him and they made an agreement she would read him a chapter or two at night he's 16 now and it was a wonderful bonding experience for the two of them first of all they're so close anyway they always have been but as they went through this then stephanie was able to go ahead and read to caden and they'd go through chapter by chapter and she could tell him the backstory she could tell him things that weren't in the book she could talk about her feelings and the things that he did and as I asked him when he got to the end of it, I said, so what did you think? And he says, well, I really like the parts about me. <laughs> <laughs> and because there were so many times that he really was so special in, in giving us a break, giving us an escape. And it was so wonderful. We were all taking turns, taking feedings at night, and no one likes to be sleep deprived. And it's a lot harder in your 50s than it is in your 20s with children. But I loved getting up with Caden at night and when he would start to fuss a little bit because he just melted in your arms and it was just such a wonderful thing. 
But uh, yeah, he also really liked the life lessons. And that was something that I really enjoyed writing. They're simple things. But none of my grandparents really stepped up and did that for me, giving life lessons and giving me words of wisdom and things like that. And it was something that I wanted to do for him. And he really enjoyed that. This is something that appears, not every chapter, but almost every chapter has these life lessons. Everything from you'll never run out of love, it multiplies as you share it, on to gratitude and just other things that tie in with the moment you were living. And that's exactly right. Those things came to me as I was writing the book. And it was just like, yeah, I want to say something extra to Caden. And so I tried different ways to do that and to incorporate it in the writing. And I just found out that the life lesson was the easiest way to do it. But I wanted to go ahead and share that for him. And he really appreciated the fact that we didn't stay standing still and worrying. We weren't victims. We went ahead and started attacking the problem and defining it and moving forward. And that is so critical. And that's something that Caden has done throughout his life. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. You mentioned the oncologist who heard about your journaling and said you need to share this to give people hope. Beyond that, is there something you hope people get from reading the book? Yes, it was a labor of love. And it was something, as I said, that I did for my grandson. And then when I started doing it for the public, I went ahead and I knew that I had to add other things in there about our family and about our past to go ahead and take the emotional moments and give the reader a little bit of a break so they could go ahead and recoup and continue to move on. My real hope is that people's faith and their hope will be boosted by this. We live in a crazy world right now, and it isn't just for people that may be finding themselves in a medical emergency or a medical crisis. If you talk to anyone somewhere in their family, there's difficulty, there's challenge. There's so much division between us as a nation, as a country, as individuals. There's just so much that's going on. I think this is a good example of what you can do within your own life, in your own circle of people in the fact that as a family, we pulled together and we had a common goal. And that's critical, I think, that to have common goals in your life if you're gonna go ahead and move forward. I think that's one of the reasons that Stephanie survived is she had not only a goal of surviving to live, but more importantly, she had something to fight for. She wanted to live for this grandchild. And when we fight for something beyond ourselves, I think it makes us harder, it gives us more resilience. So I'm hoping that people are entertained by the book. They say that if you're going to get up in front of a group and talk, you want to make them laugh, you want to make them cry, you want to go ahead and teach them something. And so that's something I tried to put in the book. That was Michael Schnabel talking about his book, Daddy's Girl, A Father, His Daughter, and the Deadly Battle She Won, which makes me really happy that she has lived to know that little boy, Caden, and that he has lived to know her in a way that, I mean, he's a teenager now. So, yes, he has a life full of memories of her no matter what. Yeah. You know, in my own family, we have a lot of cancer, and at the end of five or six years, people die. And I was really happy for Michael. I was very happy for his daughter, Stephanie, and and his grandson, Caden, that it was different from them. I do think that there are just lessons here that can be learned and are important to be learned without us taking it on ourselves to say, it it didn't happen for me in the same way. I love his journaling. And that had to be therapeutic for him, first of all, to just put his feelings down and you have to recognize what you are feeling first. But he also, on top of that, this journaling had this extra sense of mission, which was just in case... I'm going to have something that will help this little boy know his mother and not just have a few pictures of her. It's not just that God will step in and take this challenge from us every time, like Heather was saying. It's more of a growth process, and it's a partnership, which our next guest will get into as well. Yeah, 
great lead-in to our next guest, Leah, who (laughs) is Jonathan Rose, the series editor and translator for the New Century Edition, which is an ongoing project that incorporates the latest scholarship in modern accessible English translations of Emanuel Swedenborg's theological works. So, Steve, you know a little bit about this group. I had heard about them, and I was visiting my son in Boston, and I happened to see that there was a Swedenborgian chapel there. So I made an appointment to go talk to the pastor there. She was delightful. You can hear her in a previous episode on (laughs) In Good Faith. And so that got me studying a little bit. So he has this interesting experience. He's an inventor. He's a scientist. He's hugely respected, very intelligent. And then at about age 53, as we'll hear, he starts having these visionary experiences. And it wasn't something that just exploded on him one time and he spends the rest of his life thinking, was that real? Was that? He spends 27 years feeling like he has one foot on this earth and the other foot in heaven. Yeah, so Jonathan Rose becomes sort of our our mediator yeah. for Emanuel Swedenborg in this interview and has his own incredibly interesting relationship to those writings. And he talks about prayer in a way that was really intriguing to me and kind of instructional, made me think about a, a way that that we start a prayer and that we're opening a dialogue or a relationship that in some ways we become responsible for. Yeah. So here we are. We're going to hear from Dr. Jonathan Rose discussing not only the translations of Emanuel Swedenborg's writings, but also this partnership with God. Emanuel Swedenborg was born in 1688, died in 1772, and so lived most of his life in the 18th century He started out as a scientist, philosopher, and interested in all the latest developments that were going on at the time, but then had a kind of spiritual awakening in his early 50s and felt called, felt that he had had a vision of Jesus and was called to work in a more theological vein. So he didn't leave his science hat entirely behind. He brought his clipboard and lab coat with him to this study of spiritual experiences, including a very long time that he said he was conscious in both worlds virtually continuously for a 27-year period. And so he took these experiences he was having and wrote a number of works, some three and a half million Latin words of published material about his experiences. His most famous work is probably Heaven and Hell, and he has Divine Love and Wisdom, True Christianity, and wrote a lot of interesting different works based on his spiritual experiences and the insight that they were giving him. Do we know if this incredible experience that he had in his 50s, which is pretty remarkable at that age to have such a change in spiritual awareness, was that something he was seeking or that came upon him and found him? That's a really great question. We don't know for certain. I know a lot of people believe that this just happened upon him and he was quite surprised. I've heard some interesting reflections. There's a scholar named Anders Hallengren who believes that there was more of a direct connection that since he was young, he had always been interested in thoughts and feelings in human psychology, although that wasn't even, that was hardly a word yet. And that was long before Jung and Freud and so on. His interest in the workings of the mind and heart led him finally, after a study of anatomy, to this kind of breakthrough to another level. So I think you can read it both ways, that in some ways he had he had prayed for this, it was something that he wanted, but I think a lot of it also took him by surprise. And the way you described it, that after this experience, he found himself remaining sort of one foot in each world, according to his writings. That's right. He even runs what you might call experiments in the spiritual world to show how the human psyche works. And so you can still see that he's categorizing, evaluating, thinking about truth claims, thinking about how do I know that I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing and how can I convince other people? And so he's very much still has that approach. He was sharing his teachings, but he didn't set out to form a denomination. How would you describe Swedenborgian or Borgian Christian? Or how would you describe what it has become today? 
It definitely is a form of Christianity in the sense that it believes in Jesus Christ. It gives a very central role to Jesus and believes that he's divine and believes in the holiness and revelatory nature of the Bible. It also has features of spirituality that have actually appealed to people from a variety of backgrounds. There was a movement in Buddhism in the very beginning of the 20th century that was inspired by what Swedenborg was writing. So I'm interested that it fit with a few different worldviews, but he definitely saw what he was doing as a kind of an effort to reform Christianity. And as you say, I don't get the sense that he wanted to create yet another denomination. I think he saw this more as an upgrade. He spends some time talking to both Catholics and Protestants, the two grand divisions that existed at that time, and really inviting them both to another way of holding Christianity. So I, I think he was thinking of something broader than another denomination. As far as what we would call a holy book or holy text in scripture, there would be the Bible. And how are his writings regarded? There's an excellent question and one on which devoted people have differed over time. Some people would put them on a par with the Bible. Some people see it as a ancillary revelation that helps you understand the Bible. And there are some parts of his works that are some people have question marks about this particular, I don't know if that part is of the same value as this other part. There's other people who feel very strongly that, oh no, it's all, the whole thing is inspired. So it's an interesting question of, of where people come out in regard to what he wrote. I wonder, before we get to translation, which I think is going to be fascinating to ask about, could you tell us a little bit about your own journey? And I only know enough of that to say that you may have had a bit of your own spiritual experiences, Emanuel Swedenborg did. A tiny little taste, when I think back on it, there was a particular moment when I was 22 when I had what I could only call a kind of vision. And I'd like to set this up a little bit by saying that up until that point, I'd had a lot of different passions and interests. I was very interested in music. I'd taken 12 years of classical piano training. My parents had given me a guitar. I learned how to play the guitar. I played violin for a while. I was younger. I was very voraciously interested in music, also interested in languages. Somehow along there between living in England, Canada, and the U.S., I had eight years of classroom French. I had three years of Latin, a year of Hebrew. I was interested in languages. And when I would do my homework as a kid, I would often do it in a like a Scottish or an Australian accent, probably a bad accent. But So when I was 22, I was in a sharing group at a religious retreat camp. I was mildly bored and just empty in my head. This woman who was sharing just suddenly stopped speaking and said, I'm having trouble expressing myself. And when she said that word expressing, I went into this kind of a vision in my mind's eye. I could see this kind of lattice work that triangle back and forth with lines going from left to right and right to left, almost lighting at a wedding at night or something like mm. outdoor. And it had lights where the lines would cross. It's not something I've spoken about much, so I may be stumbling a little bit in my description here. But the thing about each of those lights and what made me feel like it was a spiritual experience rather than just sort of imagination was that each of those lights was something meaningful from my life. That one was the fact that I did my homework in a Scottish accent. This one was the fact that I love music and all about languages and performance. Everything in my life up to that point had to do with expression. And so that was really interesting to me, but it also begged some questions. I felt like I'd been handed a gift. And as I think about it now, in distant retrospect, there was no sense of a figure or a being or anything like that. And yet whatever was communicating with me knew a lot more about me than I did. It knew how all these things interrelated and could tie them all together and show me that this was all one, one story. 
hear what seemed to me like a bunch of random different interests. Interesting. Did you have a sense that tied in with your previous faith life or how you'd been taught? I actually am a rather rare bird that I am eighth generation Swedenborgian. Swedenborg stops writing in 1772. I think by the 1780s, my relatives got interested (laughs) in this. Mm. And my father was a Swedenborgian minister. My great-grandfather was a Swedenborgian minister. It was still very important to me at a certain point that I had to leave it and then come back to it on my own, make it my own. Right. To understand spiritual things in so many different traditions, there is a book, a holy text. And for almost all of us, we are hearing that or reading it, and we forget that it is a translation. Sometimes it's gone through two or three languages on the way from Hebrew to Greek or Aramaic, and finally to us. And we sort of hope the original intent is there. But we don't think about that. We just pick it up and says, the Word of God says. (laughs) And so here's this really interesting opportunity where there have been translations. Uh, Swedenborg spoke Swedish, but that's not the language of science, and that's the language he used. Will you? I know it's complicated, but if you could briefly describe what that was, and then I'd like to talk about your translation process as you are retranslating into modern English. Mm, Great questions. Swedenborg grew up speaking Swedish and lived in Sweden. However, from an early age, he became associated with the University of Uppsala I forget whether he was nine years old or 11, but it was very young. They would take young students and you could be tutored by professors. And so I think his Latin education began very early. And Latin at that time, contrary to popular opinion, was still a living language. It was spoken in the classroom. You can see authors from that time period, Swedish authors who will say, it's so easy to express these thoughts in Latin, but what would the Swedish word for it be? I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> They're native Swedes. And so I think he lived in both of those languages. So you have this really interesting experience I find myself slightly envious of, mostly I'm happy for you, which is that you have had these writings in English for your whole life, but now you're going back and translating or retranslating. And I'm so curious what you find or what you've learned, or do you see things where you think, actually, I, he's saying something different than we thought he was saying? Mm. Any, any of those kind of experiences? Definitely. Some of the translations were not tremendously well done, a very scholarly approach or anything. And so the English that they used stayed very close to the Latin. I think of it as being like a sports car where you can feel every bump in the road. You can feel the Latin (laughs) going by when you read these translations. And the English, as a result, was stilted. It was really almost a dialect that you could call Swedenborgianese that was created for the purpose of just barely getting these into English. And when I started to read and had enough Latin by that point. What struck me was that there was a sense of humor. There was tone. It was much more living and vibrant than the kind of dry prose I'd been used to in English. As I got more deeply into translating, there was one word that that I wrestled with particularly. There were many instances like this, but there was a word that had always been rendered conjunction because it's the Latin word conjunctio, which is C-O-N-J-U-N-C-T-I-O. You just slap an N on the end and you've got conjunction. And this is a really important word to Swedenborg about our relationship with the divine. So I was translating true Christianity and thinking, this, this is not the right word. What should I be using here? And studying what he was saying about it. And he compared it to two people adjusting to each other, and then coming to an agreement, and even signing a document or creating a contract. And the word that came to mind was partnership. It's like people entering into a business arrangement, could be like people getting married or whatever. But uh, conjunction is a great example of a word that feels dry. If you read it again and again, you don't really know what it means. But 
that word partnership really made me think differently. First of all, it's so mind-boggling, the idea that the divine would want to enter into a partnership with a humble piece of dust like us, if you have that partnership. We're supposed to enter into this agreement, and that, that changed a lot of things about the way that I hold what I'm doing in my life and what role I expect God to have and what role I'm supposed to have. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. What do you value in your association or partnership with God and with a a Swedenborgian way of looking at this life and the next life. In terms of the afterlife, one concept that's very striking to me, which you really don't need Swedenborg for, you have it in the Bible there, fairly clearly, the idea that the afterlife is an honest world, the idea that what you whispered in the closet will be shouted from the rooftops, that that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Swedenborg goes into quite a bit of detail about that actually... He says that you cannot lie in that world. You can try, but your voice will sound distorted. Anybody can tell because mm. you'll have the type of voice that lying has. <laughs> we, we really have to be honest with ourselves now, like it behooves us to be honest with ourselves now about thoughts and feelings that go through our secret hearts and understand that that's going to be something more public in the other world. It's not necessarily for just horrible shaming it's actually useful uh, for you and and there's something peaceful about the fact that the way he describes it in the other world you just you are who you are you really get down to your essence that that teaching we get about that we, we will know as we are known i find that both encouraging that i can truly understand someone they can truly understand me and Combining God in that equation is really appealing. Lots of us have some reason or two that ultimately we would say, this is why I have to say I have faith or why I have a belief in the divine, in God. The first thing that comes to mind is that a friend suggested that I try a God box experiment. I suppose this is a thing that other people have done, where I took a shoe box, cut a hole in it, and I wrote my prayers over the course of a couple of years and put my prayers in there. And then the idea was you put them in there, and then you check later to see whether God's picking up the mail. And I did this for a couple of years, and then forgot all about it, stopped doing it. And then a year or two later, I suddenly noticed that shoebox there, like, I never opened it up. I never went back to, to read it. I was absolutely stunned. The only thing on there that hadn't been answered was finishing my doctoral dissertation. And I did finish that a couple of years later. Every other piece of mail had been answered. And what was fascinating about that was that, A, they were answered. And B, often there was a delay from the asking to the answer. And I was concerned with new things now. And I'd forgotten. (laughs) And that really had a huge effect on my sense of, no, this is a real the rational mind rebels at the thought of putting something in a box as if that's a mailbox to God, but it worked. And the fact that you had written them down let you have that possibility. That's right. I would not have remembered without that exercise of just jotting them down. It was really remarkable. There's one additional factor, which is there's certain things that are allowed in response to our prayers. So it's very important because once we pray, then we're We've opened that partnership in a different way. And so things can happen in response to prayer. The God that I used to want, I really wanted for a long time. God, just you take over. I'm not doing a great job with my life. You just take the wheel. You drive. I'll sit in the passenger seat. And I had this frustrating conversation with God over and over again in my mind where I would say, I want the highest. I want your highest will. I I want whatever your will is for me. And God would say, I'm just interested in what you want. Eventually, it dawned on me, no, this is a partnership. This is something where I'm supposed to engage. I'm supposed to filter it through my own freedom and rationality, like my vision of expression of revelation. I didn't know what to do with that. But now I've come to 
love that, that there's both a sense of divine help. It seems like a strange thing to say, but there's divine help in small things. How should I deal with this situation with my daughter? Or how shall I, what do I do about this? Or how can I help this friend or something? And I'll get inspiration in, in the wee hours about those things. The big things, should I marry this person? Should I change jobs? Where should I live? Deafening silence on those until I've made a decision. And I've really come to understand, oh, no, that's a very loving, used to bother me that there was that absence at the most, like, why will you help me out with a little thing, like a flat tire, but not with a big life decision? <laughs> and now I understand that, oh, no, this is a partnership. I've got to take responsibility for these choices. I don't think God's moved. It's like that old saying, there was a guy who's driving around in the truck and his wife says, don't you miss it when we used to sit so close together in the truck? And he just said, I haven't moved. And um, <laughs> and I think that's sort of how God feels. I just shift a little farther over on the bench. <laughs> oh, I've got to remember that. You know, uh, Jonathan, you give me this beautiful image in my mind of God not just saying, you knucklehead, will you will you just figure out this plan that I've worked out for you? You'll be happy if only you would turn left, then right, then left, then wait five seconds and hop three times. And it, I get this image of God saying, no, no, this is part of what I love is seeing you create this and discover who you are and who the possibilities I put in you. I love that. And I agree with that 100%. Having children and now grandchildren, I realize my feeling about them is that every single thing they do surprises me and a lot of it delights me. <laughs> and it's just wonderful. Wow, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I have come to more of that sort of philosophy of how God holds us, not that God isn't omniscient. It's more empowering to think, a little scarier in some ways, but definitely more enlivening to think that we're just moving forward and should we go left or right? That's our choice. That was Jonathan Rose on the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg. I like how both of the guests talk about habits that they had instilled before something difficult or something changed and they needed to rely on those habits. I think it's just interesting that both of our guests had this kind of embedded into their daily lives so that they were prepared when something else happened. True. Interesting. Yeah. I like how you said in there, Steve, you were a little jealous that he got to work with these translations or he was doing these translations. I'd love to know actually more what you were thinking when you said that. Do you remember? Well, he's been reading his whole lifetime as a seventh or eighth generation Swedenborgian, these English translations that were people doing their best way back when. But Swedenborg, it turns out, was writing in this particular type of scientific Latin. Well, Jonathan Rose has studied that. And so he is translating the scripture he grew up with, the, the spiritual writings he grew up with, and discovering new things because he knows what Swedenborg was actually talking about. Yeah. That just seems like a remarkable thing hundreds of years later. I also love the the discussion of the translations, and it reminded me of, I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in France, and I had French translations of the Book of Mormon. And some 20 years later, I was back in France, and they had done a new translation of the Book of Mormon into French. And it was kind of exciting. It was like, okay, how do we get a clear vision of this beloved scripture in this uh -huh. other language? And what can I learn from this new French translation that maybe I'm not paying attention to in the English itself because I'm so used to the English, right? Um, and so I was thinking about him having a similar experience, like what new things am I learning about, you know, these sacred visions that are going to be helpful for me in my life? And a thing I was dying to mention before we played the interview, but I thought, no, I just want to <laughs> let people hear that unfold, is the God box. Yeah. He wrote his prayers down and put them in a box for years and then forgot about it for years. And so he goes back, he opens them, and that whole idea, I'm thinking, what would mine be like if I'd been doing this for, for you know, two years and then had waited five to go through what my concerns were and to see one by one? Because he said, 
One thing that he realized is there's often a delay from asking to answer. But he felt like every one of those concerns of his had been addressed except for the PhD, which he was just about to finish. And I want to tie both of these interviews together. Michael Schnabel with his book, Daddy's Girl, experience with his daughter's cancer after delivering her first baby, and Jonathan Rose's experiences. Jonathan Rose says, he became frustrated. Why will God answer my prayers about a flat tire, but not about my big choices like where do I live, who do I marry, all of this? I have heard this sometimes called the God of the lost keys. Yeah. That people say, people will say, well, I lost my keys, I prayed, I found them, here's this little thing. And they say, I don't know if I can believe in a God who will do that, but will not seemingly answer the prayer of a mother whose child has no food. Yeah, I actually was just saying this to myself the other day. How do I, how do I uh, reconcile the God of the lost keys and uh, the death of six million Jews in the Holocaust, Right. How do you, you can't. How do you, you can't. do that? Yeah. And so it's this whole idea of what is prayer for? What I got from hearing Jonathan Rose talk about feeling like in his prayers he had opened up a relationship with God and that God seemed more to be saying, what do you want to do? This gives me a picture of a God who is sitting there or standing or existing <laughs> with a big smile saying, you are about to discover something really great, and I'm going to watch you discover it. The same way we might watch a young child figure out how to tie their shoes or realize that a butterfly can start flying and take off. That moment of discovery and new knowledge. Right. And I, I find that image of God to uh, ring true in several situations in my life, even though I can also point to some where I say, you did help me find my keys. But gosh, it really would have been more helpful <laughs> if you could have helped me know what to say to my son in this situation or yeah. something that seemed huge to me. Right, yeah. So lots to think about with both of these people about a relationship with God in changing life circumstances. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes... Emma Engebretson, Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katarina Martinich. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio.